This is the My Child Will Thrive podcast, and I'm your host, Tara Hunkin, nutritional therapy practitioner, certified GAPS practitioner, restorative wellness practitioner, and mother. I'm thrilled to share with you the latest information, tips, resources, and tools to help you on the path to recovery for your child with ADHD, autism, sensory processing disorder, or learning disabilities. My own experiences with my daughter, combined with as much training as I can get my hands on, research I can dig into, and conferences I can attend, have helped me to develop systems and tools for parents like you who feel overwhelmed trying to help their children. So sit back as I share another great topic to help you on your journey. A quick disclaimer before we get started. My Child Will Thrive is not a substitute for working with a qualified healthcare practitioner. The information provided on this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat your child. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any information or treatments that you have learned about on this podcast. There are many gifted, passionate, and knowledgeable practitioners with hundreds if not thousands of hours of study and clinical experience available to help guide you. Part of our goal is to give you the knowledge and tools you need to effectively advocate for your child so that you don't blindly implement each new treatment that comes along. No one knows your child better than you. No one knows your child's history like you do or can better judge what is normal or abnormal for your child. The greatest success in recovery comes from the parent being informed and asking the right questions and making the best decisions for their child in coordination with a team of qualified practitioners in different areas of specialty. Now on with the show. Hi, I want to welcome everybody back to the My Child Will Thrive podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Terry Walls. Uh, Dr. Walls is an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner and a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa, where she conducts clinical trials. In 2018, she was awarded the Institute for Functional Medicine's Linus Pauling Award for her contributions to research, clinical care, and patient advocacy. And she is the author of The Walls Protocol, A Radical New Way to Treat All Chronic Autoimmune Conditions Using Paleo Principles. So, and I'm, so I'm really excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So when we're going to dive right into this, because this is a really important conversation and it's often overlooked um, in our community um, because people don't even consider um, how autoimmunity plays a role. But before we get started with that, why don't you tell everybody um, who aren't f- familiar with your work um, what, where, what your story is and how you came sure. about to come up with the Walls Protocol. So I'm a internal medicine uh, physician and a very much a conventionally trained uh, physician and was very skeptical of special diets and supplements and all of that stuff. Uh, but then in 2000, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Uh, and I knew I wanted to treat my disease aggressively, so I sought out the best people in the country, took the newest drugs, but I went relentlessly downhill. Uh, now, two years into this, my uh, physicians told me about the work of Lauren Cordain. I, I read his papers, his books, and decided to go back to eating meat after 20 years of being a vegetarian. I gave up all grains, all legumes, all dairy. But I, so it was a huge, huge change. But I continued to go downhill. The following year, I needed a tilt recline wheelchair. I, I took more potent drugs, including uh, Tizabri. I continued to relentlessly go downhill. 
I have tried general neuralgia, and that was re uh, continuing to get steadily worse. Uh, by 2007, I was so weak I could not sit up in a regular chair as I am now. Uh, I was beginning to have trouble with brain fog. My uh, face pains were more severe, more difficult to turn off. And I thought that was likely I was going to become bedridden, demented, and have to live with intractable pain. Uh, but fortunately, I'd been reading the basic science, ancestral health, and functional medicine. In integrating all three, I uh, designed a diet and lifestyle protocol specifically for my brain, my mitochondria, and my brain cells. And to my amazement, my pain stopped and my brain fog cleared. And then I was even more amazed. I started getting stronger. Uh, and I was seeing physical therapy. They uh, started advancing my exercises. Uh, started having me lift weights. And then I, uh, for the first time in six years, I got on my bike and I biked around the block. My uh, children are crying. My wife's crying. I'm crying. And uh, in six more months, I do an 18.5 mile bike ride with my family. And once again, you know, I'm crying, my wife's crying, my kids are crying. <clears throat> if I talk about much longer, I'll be crying because uh, that just felt so miraculous. And of course, it, this changes how I think about disease and health. It changes the way I practice medicine and it would ultimately change the way I um, uh, conduct my research. It's, it truly is an incredible story and um, incredible because I mean, as you know, as a physician, what, what you've been told about what the prognosis for MS is, it was nothing like this. Oh, correct. You know, with progressive MS, you know, clearly the, the message is functions once lost are gone forever. And I understood that. And I could certainly see that, I, you know, my trajectory was clearly downhill at been having relentless worsening of my face pain for 27 years relentless worsening of my MS-related disability for seven years, there was never any improvement. And, and I accepted that. And so it was start, startling that I started getting stronger. Uh, in fact, I, I was remarkably better walking around the neighborhood before, and because I had accepted that, it's just taken it every day, one day at a time. It wasn't until I got on my bike that I realized like, oh my God, how much recovery might be possible. It's, it is really exciting. And that's why I'm so happy to have you here talking about this because um, obviously the p parents that are listening are, um, are uh, obviously want that hope that they can help their children's brain and be retrained and improve their health overall as well. So, yes, um, yes. Th and, and this is what this is an example of just because the diagnosis is different. Um, it is the example of how we have the ability to um, improve the health of our brains and our bodies at the same time and, um, and recover a function that may never have developed in the first place or has been, uh, has regressed and has been lost from previous. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I was taught, and I had accepted that uh, neurodegeneration is fixed and irreversible, that brain cells once lost are gone forever, functions once lost are gone forever. And of course, now we, we understand that in fact, the brain is incredibly plastic. It's always remodeling and repairing in response to the environment you, that you give it. Uh, and so 
uh, we have a revolution now in uh, the neuroinflammation world and the neurodegeneration world, like, oh my God, the brain repair absolutely is possible. Uh, and uh, you know, thanks to the work uh, that we've done, we've radically shifted even the focus of, of research. When I first started uh, doing my research in 2010, I was the only one doing any kind of multimodal diet and lifestyle intervention for um, neurodegeneration, for MS. Uh, and you know, we got positive results. We've published many, many papers now on our research. And now when I go to clinicaltrials.gov, in fact, there are 13 dietary uh, uh, studies now, uh, and we are also doing studies of lifestyle, these multimodal interventions. Mm -hmm. And so what 10 years ago was dogma, you could not do that, it was terrible science. Mm -hmm. It's now finally dogma like, this is the best science to do diet and lifestyle multimodal interventions that creating health is the best science. Yeah, actually, that's it is really exciting to hear that because that's something that that we've all heard for 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 many years. Is one of the problems is is that um, no one wants to make these changes because there's no science there, and then the the conversation is around you know how can you create the science because it is really truly to to do this well, it has to be a multimodal approach. So it's Correct. exciting to hear how the science is evolving in terms of doing the clinical research and, and really getting those outcomes that uh, can help people change their minds about what's possible. You know, I actually have to thank you and your community uh, for part of this. Uh, and that's because it, it was the, when my book, my uh, TED talk went viral, which then led to my uh, getting a book deal and the book was a bestseller, that created a lot of buzz in the MS community, which the MS Society noticed which led them to have a wellness conference. And they uh, tracked me down, invited me. And I said, yo, well, I have to rearrange my schedule to come, but you have to unban me because I can't come to a conference where I've been banned as a speaker. So they were very apologetic. And yes, they did unban me. Uh, and I went and I was part of their wellness conference. And that led to them making diet and lifestyle and wellness a research priority which then led to them to uh, call out for proposals. They funded us and have funded other uh, uh, scientists. So now we're finally doing the science and we have funding agencies uh, like the MS Society, like the NIH that is now funding science that's looking at these, these complicated multimodal studies. And it is hard. It, it, it's a much more, um, uh, challenging science to conduct because now we're asking people to change what they eat and do. And that's a much bigger ask than just taking a pill every day. You know, to give up familiar foods, eat new unfamiliar foods, uh, add a stress reducing practice, add an exercise program. We're, this is a huge dramatic ask. Uh, and so, yes, this, this is, a, a much harder science than uh, pill-based studies. Uh, this is where recovery happens. 
Exciting. So before we uh, go too much further, I do want to just ask you if you can explain to everybody, um, because not everybody uh, understands the background behind really what autoimmunity is. Oh, sure. So, so can we talk about what that is and what types of diagnosis um, outside of MS um, that people may have, may have heard of or not sure. heard of that actually sure. are tied to autoimmunity? Well, let's talk a little bit about what our immune cells do. Our immune cells will inspect all of our cells and decide, is that cell in healthy, good shape, it's functioning well, or it's been damaged because of infection or trauma or burn. Uh, and so I need to repair, re perhaps dissolve, eat up, replace, and rebuild that cell and that tissue. And that very important function is how we maintain our health, maintain our integrity, uh, recover from infection, recover from a laceration or burn uh, or other trauma. It's, it's vital to the maintenance and repair function. What appears to happen is that those immune cell functions are going after uh, parts of our body that we think are, are normal, are healthy, are functioning well. But for some reason, my immune cell, when it sees that part of my body, it's interpreting the, those structures as having been damaged. And therefore, it's initiating the signal to like, okay, this is damaged, I have to replace it, so I'm gonna release a bunch of chemical compounds to eat up these damaged cells and start making uh, new versions. Well, so in my case, my immune cells were interpreting parts of my brain and spinal cord and my optic nerves as damaged. So it's releasing a variety of compounds to begin eating up those cells and uh, rebuilding them. Uh, of course, it's not doing a very good job of the rebuilding. And so scars were developing on my optic nerves, uh, in my spinal cord, uh, and in my brain. Uh, and we, we know, if we look back at the last 300 years, there's been a steadily increasing frequency uh, of autoimmune diagnoses in adults and in children. And these autoimmune diagnoses might be skin problems like psoriasis or blistering skin conditions or, or even acne, uh, what we see so many of our children uh, suffering with. Or it might be inflammatory bowel disease with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's and a lot of uh, diarrhea issues or you know, profound constipation. Or it might be uh, a lot of behavioral issues, irritable, irritability issues, learning behavior problems, um, or uh, multiple sclerosis. You know, multiple sclerosis is now being diagnosed in young children, in teenagers, in um, uh, elementary age school kids. Uh, we have uh, young children uh, with celiac disease, with inflammatory bowel disease, with psoriasis. Yeah, and so uh, I, I think we all need to be asking, why are we seeing the steady increase in autoimmunity? in adults and in children, what changed our environment that has led this to happen? And what could we do to make our environment less irritating, uh, less triggering this way? Yeah, and well, and I think you've covered off actually a lot of really important points there. I mean, um, we're seeing, uh, uh, you know, a rise in autoimmunity and we're seeing a correlation in that rise 
of autism, ADHD, sensory processing, learning disabilities, everything else. So we we have to know that there's some there's there are ties to all of these chronic health conditions and and a change in our environment because we know that our genetics haven't evolved um, in the same period of time. So how? So go, go ahead. You know, it used to be that our children died of infections. They didn't have chronic diseases. They had infections. They might develop rheumatic fever uh, from uh, as a byproduct of infections, but they weren't having cancers. They weren't having behavioral problems. They they weren't having heart disease, obesity, diabetes. Um, you know, kids were thin. They were strong. They were wiry. Uh, they you know, they were very healthy as a population. That's not what you see when you go to a elementary school now. You see kids lining up for their medications. You see kids with weight issues. You see uh, schools having to add more and more uh, uh, classes for behaviorally disturbed children. What happened? What happened? So when, when we... Um we're starting to look at all of these things. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about how, I know a good component of the WALS protocol, and we'll, we're, that's what I wanna talk about today, but how your protocol addresses the environment um, in order to regain yeah. health. So uh, as I'm reading, again, you know, the basic science trying to design a protocol that creates as much health promotion as I can. Uh, what I'm looking at, again, uh, very science-based, uh, what do we know? And this has to do with the food we eat uh, and changing the diet to a more maximally nutrient-dense diet. Uh, this, uh, and that was removing the inflammatory foods, uh, the sugar, the processed foods, uh, uh, removing the white flour. And that had already gone gluten-free, grain-free, legume-free. So I already removed all that bad stuff. But it wasn't until I, I redesigned my diet based on how to maximize nutrition for my mitochondria, for my brain cells, where I'm adding in all these greens, all these sulfur-rich vegetables in the cabbage, onion, mushroom family, all these deeply colored vegetables and berries, uh, more omega-3 fats that, you know, there was this dramatic uptick in energy, mental clarity, uh, and my pain disappeared. Uh, then I, I went back to adding a daily meditation. I had learned how to meditate during college. I quit during medical school. I no longer recall why. I could tell with my uh, MS uh, diagnosis that stress made, when I was more stressed, my symptoms were worse. I don't know why I didn't go back to meditation then, but I, I didn't. It wasn't until the fall of 2007 when I was on the brink of you know, catastrophe, then I decided to go back to uh, daily meditation. I, and uh, the one thing I had done well with diagnosis, and part of that was because I was a former athlete, I knew that exercise was vital. I had exercised every day, all of the time. Uh, even as I was getting more and more and more disabled, I was still exercising, uh, although it was getting to be smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, so that I'd done well. Uh, it was quite shocking when suddenly you know, my therapist was saying, well, you know, you're actually, you're getting stronger. We're going to be advancing your exercises. And I could, and I was getting stronger. So uh, that was uh, quite startling. 
Uh, and then I, I paid more attention to my detox pathways uh, and structuring my nutrition to boost my uh, detoxification enzymes uh, and um, adding these things, uh, Epsom salts baths. Uh, and then when I discovered that, to my amazement, I was no longer intolerant to heat. I could tolerate heat. So I put in a sauna and started doing uh, saunas every day. And I was like, wow. So I, I kept, as I was recovering, I was willing to add another step, another step, another step into my uh, self-care uh, protocols. Yeah. I, one of the things that in, in your book you talk about is, is the, you know, starting to add and then, then you're also trying to subtract and then improving beyond that with, in terms of the quality of the food that you're eating. Do you want to just touch base on that approach to yeah. making those types of dietary changes? You know, um, so I, I love the paleo diet uh, and I uh, discovered that pretty early on in, in my journey. I, I had been following a, a very low fat vegetarian diet for 20 years before then. Uh, and of course, my heart docs would have thought this was like the perfect uh, best diet I could possibly be following. Uh, and then yeah, I read Lauren Cordain and after a lot of prayer and meditation, I decide to go back to eating meat and I stop all grain, all legumes, all dairy. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do the best that I can. Uh, and I discover functional medicine. I decide mitochondria are really key. So I I'm adding supplements to support my mitochondria. And I figure out that adding those supplements reduces my fatigue. And that's helpful. It's slowing the speed of my decline. That's very inspiring. So I'm really excited about that. But I'm still declining. It wasn't until I had this really big aha, like I should redesign my paleo diet based on these 17 nutrients I was taking in pill form. And that was a little more research to figure out where they are in the food supply. Uh, and so I, I, at first I start with these long list of foods that I should be stressing. Uh, and I have redesigned my paleo diet, now stressing the foods to eat. Uh, and I'm now stressing that I'm, I'm only going to eat organic foods. If it's not organic, I didn't want to eat it. Because at this point, you know, my pain is very difficult to manage. I, I'm having brain fog. I know it's, it's a struggle to walk, uh, even very short distances. And I want to keep the little functions that I have for as long as I can. So I'm like, okay, I got to do everything that I possibly can. And so I'm being even more meticulous on all of my uh, dietary choices. And you know, it was startling. Uh, a month into this, I realized you know, my, my pain, I'm not having pain. That was startling. And then it became apparent that my energy's improving. And I'm realizing that, you know, my mental clarity is improving. And then uh, the other thing that, that was startling, and I think it was about six weeks into this, I had um, a zero gravity chair at one in my office, one at, at home, uh, and I, I couldn't sit up anymore in a regular chair. So I, I'm reclining with my knees higher than my nose. So, I mean, I'm, I'm way reclined back and I'm eating that way. And I'm realizing 
I can sit up a little more as I'm eating. And then I realize I can sit in a regular chair for supper. I can sit in a regular chair for supper. I'm about six weeks into this, like, oh my God, that is startling. And I realize uh, in my office, I don't have to be sitting back nearly as far. Um, and so it was the addition of food. So supplements were helpful. They, they had reduced my fatigue. They had slowed my decline. And I'm very grateful. It inspired me to read more research and get more fired up about mitochondria, more fired up about cellular nutrition. But it, it was when I really focused on the food, what, how do you organize the diet in a very specific way to maximize the nutrition? That's when the magic happened. Yeah, it is. Um, and of course, I've said, I've said this to you before, but uh, the, um, you know, as a nutritionist, uh, looking to food um, in its natural state, um, nutrient-dense food is always going to be, I think, the better solution. It's a challenge sometimes for parents, for kids to get them to eat some of these things that we know they should be eating, um, but it's a challenge worth taking on. So I yeah. think ho hopefully your story will illustrate the impact because we can't always replicate or we can't replicate we can't, in supplements that of what we get in food because of the synergistic um, nature of the way they, the foods just are created. F food is more complex. Uh, there's more synergy. And when you, when you, and you manufacture, take the food and you made it into a supplement, there's all these processing uh, procedures and these compounds that can get added to the food during that, during that manufacturing process that change it. Mm -hmm. And we have these new compounds, food-like compounds that are added. And certainly in my clinical practice, we do have patients who can't take any supplements. And it, it takes longer for us to recover them using strictly food. But you know they've tried a variety of supplements and they always react terribly. And it's probably because they're sensitive to some of those uh, compounds that are added to foods during these supplements during the supplement process that interfere with how they run the chemistry of life. It does, it does make a really big difference for sure. What, um, what, are, what are your, when you have, I mean, I know you've worked with lots of people and now you work with clinicians as well to train them in your protocol. How do you, um, what do you tell them in terms of how to make um, this change to a whole food diet? And again, trying to get it as organic as possible as well sure. and the quality of the food up can be very expensive, especially for a family wow. to take on. What, sure. uh, what do you typically tell um, your patients to, in, in order to, to so, work around that? To deal with this? Mm -hmm. So I was working in the VA at this time uh, and I had this remarkable transformation. Uh, the VA saw that I changed how I practiced uh, in primary care, in the traumatic brain injury clinic. It was getting these amazing results. Uh, and so they um, allowed me and asked me to create a new clinic we called it the Therapeutic Lifestyle Clinic at the VA. And uh, uh, people would come get referred in uh, with any kind of chronic, complicated medical problem who was willing to do diet and lifestyle. And so the people that we saw most commonly had uh, pain, uh, mental health issues, 
uh, and they may have a variety of underlying medical problems, sometimes autoimmune, sometimes diabetes, obesity, um, uh, chronic pain issues. And they were often disabled because uh, of, of the severity of their illness, living on fixed income, very limited financial resources. We would take these folks and uh, we would get them on a gluten-free, dairy-free diet. I'd have a program for meat eating and not meat eating. Uh, and we would teach them cooking classes. Uh, we'd teach them how to make a menu, how to uh, make a shopping list, uh, how to cook. Uh, and uh, if we talk about the benefits of organic and using the clean 15 and the dirty dozen to prioritize what to be organic, we had plenty of folks who couldn't do anything organically because finances were that limited. Uh, but we taught them how uh, to do beans and rice if uh, money uh, was tight and we needed to limit the amount of meat. Uh, we taught them how to use uh, hunting, fishing, foraging, gardening, how to use the local farmer's markets, um, how to go to the local meat locker who often had uh, don donated venison uh, because of uh, uh, controlled uh, deer hunts uh, here in the Midwest. Uh, there's often too many deer that we need to have some controlled deer hunts. And many lockers have uh, deer meat for anyone in the community who wants to have that. And what we saw was that people's, you know, the blood pressure was improving, the blood sugar was improving, the mood was improving. People would say, you know, and my kids are doing better. My kids' behaviors are doing better. Their grades are doing better. And my spouse's health problems are getting better. My children's health problems are getting better. Time and time again, uh, we saw this. Uh, it, so the key thing is you have to learn how to cook. Many people have forgotten how to cook or never learned. And so the fact that uh, I, I'm in the VA and so we're able to have these cooking classes uh, and these skills classes and uh, yeah, and certainly what, what I saw is, yes, if you could buy organic, you'll get to recover more quickly. But you'll still recover if we teach you how to cook and you'll begin cooking at home. And it's also very interesting to see that many of my folks, you know, they're, they're just getting their conventional food in the beginning from their small town, rural Iowa grocery store. But by the time we're six months into this, they'd figured out how to get mostly organic food. They figured out that if they went to their uh, organic their farmers market and went around to all the stalls and said, "You know, ma'am or sir, if I come back at the end of the farmers market and I offered to buy whatever's left, what's the best price you could give me?" And people would, were finding that they could get their organic vegetables for pennies on the dollar. That's a great strategy. Yeah, it's a it's a great strategy. Yeah, it's it's amazing too. I th I find that when people realize um, as well how much a lot of times we don't really notice how much we're eating out before we change our diets. A lot of people um, said to my uh, me and my my husband, our family, when we first changed our diet. I mean, our grocery bills did skyrocket, and we live in a rural community, and we use a lot of the same um, sources that you're talking about. But it it was more expensive on our grocery bill. But overall, if you look at where you're spending your money on your food, for a, for a number of people, not everybody, but for a lot of people, 
they'll find that when they aren't eating out as much because they are cooking and preparing more things at home. Um, and if you are very good about um, how you, there's not a lot of waste in what you, what you do, um, you're going to find that overall it may not be as expensive as you think it may be just by the sticker price on, on a particular type of vegetable or meat or whatever it is that you're purchasing. So we do have to teach people how to uh, plan for leftovers mm -hmm. so that there is no food waste, that everything you put in your mouth is part of your, your food bill. So all of those uh, fancy coffees, uh, all of those restaurant meals, all of those energy shot drinks, uh, your tobacco, your alcohol, your uh, sweetened beverages, that's all part of your food bill. Uh, and so uh, there's a process of teaching people how to think that, okay, this is all the food bill and that uh, we can help you prioritize your vegetables. Getting frozen things are fine. Getting canned things are fine. Using, getting a bag of onions is fine. Getting a bag of potatoes is fine. Getting bags of uh, beans and rice and using an instant pot to cook with, mm -hmm. uh, that is fine. Uh, uh, here in Iowa, uh, there's, there's an abundance of edible weeds in your yard. If you quit spraying your yard, you're going to have lots of edible uh, greens uh, from which that you can eat. You do have to positively identify your food. You can't just go out and eat every green thing because there are poisonous greens as well as, you know, good for you greens. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is, you know, uh, some learning curve there. And uh, people were thrilled. They wanted to go out and start eating all the mushrooms. Like, no, no, you, you have to positively identify the food you eat. Yeah, and, and then my, my rangers, you know, you know, being at the VA is like so much fun because we have these rangers who come in and start giving us classes on how they got trained to figure out what's edible and what's not edible. Uh, and, and, the, 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 and I said, well, okay, uh, that's a fun class, but you still have to positively identify what you're eating. You're not in, in uh, wilderness uh, military combat right now where you have to, uh, you know, uh, learn, use these techniques. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and there's, there's something you said about the camaraderie in the community in that healing journey of uh, the veterans teaching each other how to shop, how to cook, how to figure out what's edible, what's not edible, uh, and the love and care they had for each other, and the willingness to, to speak truth to each other. You know, when someone would say like, you know, they couldn't figure out how to deal with their grandchildren. Uh, and then their uh, peer in the group would say, well, it's, you know, grandchildren are easy. What they want is you. They don't care about whether or not you're having uh, sugary snacks. What they care most about is special time with grandpa or grandma. So true. So true. So, yeah, that that, and that there. I think there's a lot that we can learn from that um, and that that environment, that community that you've been working with for sure as a, a community. And like I said, not everybody has all these extra things they're spending that their their money on, um, like that they can cut out. And I do understand that too. So you start where you're at and oh, uh, work your way through. And what I'll do is I'm going to link to um, you mentioned the Dirty Dozen Clean Fifteen. That is something we talk about a lot here too, which is you you choose um, your, the organic um, uh, vegetables and fruits that, um, you, that you want, where you want to avoid that dirty, um, the, the dirtier ones that are out there that, you, that are, are heavily sprayed. 
Now, having said that, you know, when people try to say, you know, I can't do the Wallace protocol because uh, I'm not a doctor, I don't make all that money, I, I, I can't go to a Whole Foods the whole time. My response is, my vets in rural Iowa, shopping in their rural grocery stores, living on food stamps, on their disability income, could implement this and transform their lives. It can be done. What they did have to learn how to do was to cook how to plan their meals, and how to uh, avoid throwing anything away. And they did that. We helped them, and they transformed their lives. Their blood pressure's got under control. Their blood sugar's got under control. Their mood stabilized. They had a lot more joy. They had less pain. And they discovered that their kids were doing much better. So absolutely, it can be done. Yeah. No, that's that's amazing. So... You a lot's changed over the last um, five years or so when you started to talk about these things more publicly. Your message and your research has come a long way. What what's what are the biggest changes over that five years of um, in terms of your approach? Well, uh, one is that I'm no longer this eccentric oddity. I'm seen as this brilliant visionary, so uh, that's uh, pretty <laughs> fun for us uh, as well. Um, we are uh, much more aware of some of the needs to address oxalates, histamines, uh, FODMAPs for some individuals. Uh, we have a little more refined as to who needs the elimination diet. That is the low lectin version of my diet. We have more specific guidance uh, on uh, the, the many different ways you could get into ketosis, whether it's a high fat diet, a time restricted feeding, uh, whether uh, we're going to have you use an olive oil based ketosis or a, a um, medium chain triglyceride-based ketosis. Uh, we talk about stem cells. What are the indications for stem cells? Um, what can, uh, how you could get stem cells and how you could boost your own stem cells, which I think is uh, even the, the better uh, way to go. Um, Anti-aging strategies, after all, who would, who would not enjoy looking and feeling 10 years younger or 20 years younger? Uh, so uh, that's pretty cool. Um, and, and then the science of behavior change, based on what I've learned from my behavior change psychology colleagues and what my vets taught me, we've created a much more detailed process on how to grow your own internal motivation to do what is challenging, dealing with um, addictive foods, addictive behaviors, and how we can grow our desire and motivation to make those kinds of difficult changes. We've, there's been a lot more progress on neurorehab. And of course, there's more progress on epigenetics, on the microbiome, on uh, the uh, role of hormones uh, in brain health as well. Yeah, you know, all in all, it's about a third new and exciting material. Yeah, and that's in this. This is just about to come out. So by the time we air this, this should be out. Well, yes. well, when we air this podcast. So um, this is the walls I'm holding up for those of you that are listening. I just realized <laughs> I should probably tell you I'm holding up uh, Dr. Walls is um, new and revised um, uh, edition of the walls protocol that includes all that uh, new stuff that she was talking about there. Because, um, you know, it's, it's always great to, to have what was a great resource to begin with. 
updated because we are seeing so much progress in our our both the acceptance but also the research uh, and but also our your clinical experience in, in how to apply these things and when you when it's it's so great that you were able to do that and update it so that people can get access to that and when you get when you buy the book you get access to some bonus materials um, that are in there as well so um, you'll get a lot lots of good treats that you'll be able to get special links to oh that's i always like a good bonus yeah <laughs> it's always a nice thing to find so i um one recommend that um people i will put a link um below this episode so that you can get uh dr wall's um, latest version of her book um, and also links to where you can find her. She also trains clinicians in this protocol. So if you're looking for someone to work with to help you implement this, um, she, that's one of the great things too. She's only one person. So uh, she's now got a really um, well-regarded clinician training program that I know a lot of people have gone through and have loved. And uh, so they can get to work with um, patients like yourself. And um, we also are lucky enough, uh, Dr. Walls is going to, is, uh, has, is speaking to you on the upcoming Autism ADHD and Sensory Processing Disorder Summit of mine that will be out in June. And um, she's going to be talking more, we dive more into um, mitochondrial um, health and how this, uh, the, this protocol and, and just in general why um, we want to be looking at mitochondria as, um, uh, in terms of the health of it for our children. So. Thank you so much again for spending Thank time you. with me today. And um, I look forward to everybody getting their hands on the book and also checking you out on the uh, summit as well. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining me this week on the My Child Will Thrive podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by the My Child Essentials membership box, a quarterly subscription box curated by me to give you the tools you need to help your child thrive too. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you can spare a moment to give us a review, we'd love the feedback. Thanks for joining me today. This is Tara Hunkin, and I'll catch you on the next podcast or over at mychildwillthrive.com.